the Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Glenn Beck. The Blaze Radio Network. Brad Meltzer. Welcome to the program. I love hearing your voice. Uh, you know what? I, you are one of my favorite guests. You're one of my favorite writers, one of my favorite people and favorite historians. I mean, it doesn't get any better. I pre-listen right back to you. We've been together a long time, my friend, since I had hair. Uh, I don't think you had that much hair then. Well, it was at least one. <laughs> there was one. <laughs> Charlie there was, Brown style. Yes, there was one hair when you had when, when we first met. So, Brad, uh, I have to be honest with you. I'm reading about 600 books right now, uh, and I, I'm, I, it helps for me to have them on audio tape. So I started early this morning on your book. Uh, and I'm not there, but I will read it. And I want to have you back when I finish the book, uh, because I know I'm going to find all kinds of things about history in here uh, that uh, that, you know, that is always something great. I want to start, however, uh, with the beginning. Uh, and this isn't going to wreck anything. There's two things that I have to have you tell the story right away. First, the opening. Hang on. Right before the opening, there is. Hang on. It's my favorite page one that we've ever had. The Escape Artist definitely has my favorite page one we've ever done. So I don't know if you count this as page one, um, because I think I know what you're talking about, but this is my page one. I want to start here. In 1898, John John Albert Wilkie, a friend of Harry Houdini, was put in charge of the United States Secret Service. Wilkie was a fan of Houdini and did his own tricks himself. It's the only time in history that a magician was in control of the Secret Service. Oh, my God. What a great opening. Tell me, yeah. the, tr- tell me the true story of this first. It's an incredible story. I couldn't shake it for the better part of, uh, you know, years and years now. And I just figured, how do I, you know, how is a magician in control of the Secret Service? And none of us know this from history. And I looked into it, and Harry Houdini had his own Secret Service. Um, this was something that... Uh, you know, is what they used to do is they used to go to town early, and I don't want to ruin the book, because you'll see in The Escape Artist, you know, it's fiction, it's a thriller, but I always build it around real facts. It's a modern-day thriller, but I saw this detail from history. And what he did was his, his private secret service would go to towns early. They would figure out what handcuffs the police wore and used so that Harry Houdini could pick them. They figured out what kind of locks were on the jail cells. That was how he did the magic trick. But what I traced it back to even more, Glenn, and you'll appreciate this part, it's not the first time it happened that the government used a magician because there was a man who worked for Abraham Lincoln who was also a magician. And he used to do rope tricks and escapes. And Abraham Lincoln, during the Civil War, thought he'd make a great spy. So he hired him in the Civil War. This man eventually grew up. I don't want to ruin his name because it'll ruin something in the book. But this man eventually grew up and became such good friends with Lincoln. He's one of the people who was at Lincoln's deathbed. And then eventually this man became friends with Harry Houdini. And this is all real. It's an unbelievable lost part of history that I found. And when I built The Escape Artist, I just thought, this is what's going to be at the core of it. And the thing about Harry Houdini that I just adore is Harry Houdini was so obsessed with death that he used to give his Secret Service and his closest friends secret passwords that if they came back from the dead, mm-hmm. it would be a code word only he would know and they would know. So he would know if it was really them during a seance, because he used to always try and disprove people who were doing seances. And the story, then the password that Harry Houdini gave to his mother was a single word, Glenn, forgive, forgive. And 
that was the, I realized the entire lesson for me writing this book is that all of us in our lives, we have craters that we're in, whether it's addiction, whether it's abuse, whether it's just a loss of a loved one. Um, we have moments where the only way we're going to ever get out and escape, be escape artists ourselves, is if we forgive. And we have to start that forgiveness with ourselves. And I learned it from a guy named Harry Houdini. So before I go on, Harry Houdini, is it true that he was uh, a spy for the United States government, I think under Wilson? Yeah, he was a spy. What he used to do is it wasn't that he went in and, you know, you know, what he helped us with was actually smuggling. He was really good at that. He was good at hiding stuff. And then the other thing he was really good at is he used to go to the top foreign leaders' uh, homes he used to go to the equivalents of the White House in other part in other countries. So he'd report back and say, "Here's what security's like. Here's what happens when you walk in." Do, and that's the great trick of Harry Houdini. He can do, go anywhere. He's the most famous man in the world. Do you know if uh, the story about him with the Czar and Rasputin is true? Where he made? The... I've heard that story. I don't know. I, you know what? I, it was one of the ones. I I I don't know if it's true. It's a good story. I remember hearing it. I don't know it as well. Um, but you know what? I realized when I when I was writing the book is that. You know, when you think of the idea of a magician being in charge of the Secret Service, that was my jumping off point. And I just thought, how do I not use that today? Um, and so, you know, and one of the things we have to talk about is Dover Air Force Base. Because yeah, so that's just the, yeah. Right. So I want to get to I want to get to hang on just a second. Um, who's in control here? Why did I lose control of this show? No, no, I just uh, want to make sure we, you know, this is the, the, I, no, the I, I know you're going to love that. I can't do it with anyone because no one has the appreciation you have for it. So here is the, here is the, the, uh, opening line that I thought you might be referring to. Cause I think this is one of the best opening line, uh, in the prologue. These were the last 32 seconds of her life. No. Um, you, you, and before we get into Dover, this will kind of take you there. Um, you've set up in just the prologue, a, a scenario that I didn't have any idea, uh, was even real. So I started doing some homework and I also read your, uh, your Washington post, uh, article. Um, y you have this character she knows something. The plane is going down. She knows this is no accident, and she's trying to make sure that she survives to tell people this isn't an accident. She jumps out. I want you to talk about that, if that's even real. She jumps out of the plane, hoping that she's going to be able to survive as it's going down. Everybody, Everything is on fire, and she, she writes a note, but she wants to make sure that if she dies, the medical examiner finds the note. Tell me how you came up with this. Yeah, this is an incredible story and built again. It's all fiction. Nola is my is the character you're referring to is my favorite uh, character I think I've ever written, and it's because she comes from reality. And first of all, yes, jumping out of the plane when you get to the top of the treetops that was given to me by Air Force Rangers, and all the things you see. This is a built uh, a book built with the help of the military. That's who gave me all this stuff. The military has been incredible. And one of the things that she does in that moment is she eats the sheet of paper. And when I, you know, you know me, when I do a book, I always bring it to the experts. And I said to the medical examiners at Dover Air Force Base, and, uh, and Dover is the place where we, we all know uh, our fallen soldiers go. I didn't know that Dover is also the place that gets the world's biggest cases. So the space shuttle goes down, 9-11 happens, those bodies also go to Dover. And any secret spy around the globe that we're not supposed to know what they're doing when something happens to them, they go to Dover, too. 
So Dover is a place that's built on secrets and mysteries. So, of course, I had to look into it. And I went there and I said... Hang on just a second. Hang on just a second. But it is... Yep. Is it mainly the the top-of-the-line forensic uh, and, uh, and, and, and mortuary, if you will? That's is, exactly what's at Dover okay. Air Force Base, is, is the Dover Port Mortuary is the place that uh, not only does the medical examining side, but also does the um, mortician side of, of laying our soldiers to rest. So they will, as an example, and they're so incredible there, they will spend 14 hours. You know, if you get at a normal funeral home and you get disfigured, they'll close your coffin, it's a closed casket, and they'll bury you. But at Dover, the families of our heroes, our fallen soldiers, they don't really believe it until they see their son or daughter. So they will spend, the, the people there at Dover, will spend 14 hours uh, redoing and rebuilding the cheekbones of someone's cheek so they can see their child one last time. Let me, a true story. Is, is They once built someone's hand, rebuilt the whole hand, because a mother specifically said, I want to hold my son's hand one last time. These are heroes. Let me, uh, let me from the Washington Post, you wrote, when a soldier's body comes home, morticians can rebuild hands rather than giving them fake prosthesis so that a mother can hold her, hand, uh, her son's hand one final time. They'll spend 14 straight hours wiring together a fallen soldier's shattered jaw, then smoothing it over with clay and makeup, just so his parents can have far more ease than they would than they should have ever expected at their son's funeral. That's right. remarkable. It, it, is, it is what inspired the escape artist. I, you know, I've been to the White House. I've been to all the places. I've done all my thrillers set in real spots and shown the secret tunnels below the White House. But when I got to Dover, I was humbled. I was humbled, and I, and I found out about it because I was on a USO tour. I was in the Middle East entertaining our troops. I do USO tours. I just did one recently for them last month, another one. What do you, what I do, love what do, doing them. What, what, what do you do on the tour entertaining the troops? You know, they, bring, they bring six. I know you're thinking I do like a Dallas Cowboy cheerleader. Thing, I, right? Yeah, I'm just <laughs> thinking, you know, you and something low-cut and lacy is not right, necessarily right. what we should be sending well, over. We need, right. Well, they send, they send six thriller writers every year is what they do. Um, because there are people who love, obviously, sure, sure. you know, the country singers that are out there, and God bless them all. They're wonderful. But there are people who are just readers, yeah. and they just want good thrillers, and that's yeah. what they read. They read our books. So okay. I've been over there for, you know, I love doing the events. It was there that I found out about Dover, and really what they do beyond just taking care of the fallen soldiers, the whole, you know, everything that you've just said. And I was humbled. I was like, I need to write about these people. I need heroes for my new book. The world is starving for heroes right now. We're all starving for heroes. And here's where I saw real heroes. This was the best of the best of us working on our fallen soldiers, the true best in the uh, best of us. Okay, so and, when so hang on. So when we come back, when we come back, I had to take a quick break. I want you to, yeah. to to take us back into the airplane and the 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 hero that is jumping out of the plane and says, "I need in my autopsy, I need them to find what the truth is and what's just happened on this plane." The new book, it's out today, The Escape Artist. It is his best to date. In fact, uh, Harlan Coben said, it is not since the girl with the dragon tattoo have we seen a character like this. Holy cow, Brad. That's high praise. Um, listen, uh, I, I feel um, it's not fair to the girl with the dragon tattoo. I'll take that compliment any day. Yeah, right? Right. I mean, I'll take it any day. So let's, um, let's talk about uh, this character. Um, it starts off with her writing down stuff that she knows she's like this this is not an accident and they were going to deem it an accident i know why this plane is going down she takes out a piece of paper and she eats it as she jumps out of the plane 
tell the origin of this. So, again, in a moment that truly blew my mind, when I'm researching a fictional thriller to hear this real-life story, and that is I went to the friends at Dover, people who've worked there in the past too, and said, you know, if, if I wanted to hide a secret note on the body, on someone's body, could you do it? How would you do it? Because that's how the book opens. The, chapter one is um, you see that Nola winds up being dead in a plane crash, and our hero is laying her to rest. He works at Dover and finds this hidden note inside her body. So I was like, can you actually do it? And they said to me, if you're on a plane and the plane is going down, you could eat the note and the liquids in your stomach would actually protect the paper. And they, they said it was the ultimate message in a bottle is how they described it. And I thought, oh, that's a really cool story. And they said, no, no, it's not a story. It happened. I said, what are you talking about? They said it happened on 9-11. And they told me this true story that on 9-11, when the Pentagon victims on Flight 77 came to Dover, that when they opened one of the bodies, there was a secret note inside one of the victim's stomachs. Now, what do you, I mean, the first question you got to ask, Glenn, you know what it is, right? Yes. What did it say? What did it say? That's all I, I mean, I almost, I'll, I could tell you where I was standing when he, when he told me. I bet. Me. I mean, it was unbelievable. I can, I'll never forget that moment. And in that moment, of course, they wouldn't tell me. I respect the privacy of that. But I thought to myself, it must be someone in the military. Who else would have the wherewithal to, in the moment when a plane is going down and you're, you know, trapped by terrorists, to actually leave a final note in, you know, this ultimate message in a bottle? And then I realized that as I look at that note, I think that the person writing it was doing and searching for what we all search for every day, connection, right? That's all we need is we want to love and we want to be loved. And I can tell you, Glenn, that when my parents both died, the one moment of solace that I took in that, in that true chaos was I got to say goodbye to them. My mom died of breast cancer, my dad of heart disease, and I knew that it was coming. So thank God I got to say goodbye to them. And that's why I take hope from that note, because what that person was doing when they wrote that note and what that note did was exactly what it was designed to do. It was proof that when we reach out in the universe, when we put out that message in a bottle, that we will be heard. And, and that inspires me. And it was delivered to the person it was meant for, correct? Uh, I, you know, they would not say for sure, but I, I'll just say it to you. I got that feeling that that note made its home. Okay, you said it to me and, you know, just a few million people, too. So I just want to remind you of that uh, <laughs> when you're sharing secrets with me. We're talking to uh, Brad Meltzer. He is the host of uh, Lost History on uh, H2 the History Channel. Um, decoded um, his, uh, uh, his show Decoded also on the History Channel. Hollywood Reporter just put him on their list of Hollywood's 25 most powerful authors. Holy cow. Is that a good thing for you or a bad thing for you? I don't think they understand what powerful means in Hollywood. <laughs> I don't think so either. Um, <laughs> we knew there were errors out there, but this was a, a, a just, you know, a kind of a, a obscene one. Have you, um, uh, have, has any of your movie or your books been made into movies yet? You know, they bought the rights, but um, no, they haven't. We, you know, they've written scripts. The best one was, Glenn, is, and you, you'll appreciate this, is they, they, I, one of the books was all about uh, gambling on Congress that I did a number of years ago. And they hired this screenwriter who, like, you know, was nominated for an Oscar, and they paid him obscene amounts of money. And then he called me up and he said, so, and he was a British guy, and he said, so you have a 
two-party system of government. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, it's All right. Thank good. you. It's good. perfect. And you're a writer, too. That's good. Yeah, That's good. Fantastic. Um, so, Brad, I have used you in the past as a, a sounding board on, on things. I'll, you know, I've called you up from time to time over the years and said, so, Brad, how would this work if this were going on? Or what does this make sense? Uh, truth is stranger than fiction because truth has to make sense. Life has to make sense. Can you make sense out of our world today? Uh, that's all I'm trying to do every day. Um, and, I, you know, I have to believe, you know, and, and you and I, our bond has always been about history. And I truly believe that history always tells us in a strange, odd way the future, even though it's the past. And the one thing that I do believe, as I look at the world we live in right now, is that after the darkness must come the light. And it takes the people who are acknowledge and will push into that light to get there. Um, you know, I, it always goes back to me to Dr. King. And Dr. King, when he was a little boy, he had this, uh, he obviously is African-American, he's black. One of his best friends was white, and the little white boy refuses to play with him anymore because his father doesn't want him going to the same school, doesn't want him playing together. And Dr. King, as a boy, says he hated that boy. He just hated him for everything he was doing, for what he stood for, they didn't stand up for his dad, all these things. And he came home to his parents all ready to hate him, and his mom gave him the best lesson in life and said that when someone shows you hate, you show them love, and that that's what you have to do. And to me, I, it's so hard, right? So much makes us so angry today. So much seems like so much chaos. But I have to believe and use that as the lesson that when you go through the darkness, you can get to the light. And, uh, and that's the only thing I can push to. How much, do you, how much of that do you... How much of that is wishful thinking? And I mean, and listen, oh, it's, but listen, it's, it's, it's my dream and it's my hope. It's my faith. And, and it's, you know, and it, and it is absolutely wishful thinking, you know, because there are days I'm so angry and I'm so mad. And I see, you know, uh, one of the things, and you've and talked about this with our kids' books, is in the last year, as the presidential election approached, two books of ours took off and are still selling like crazy. I am Martin Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. and I am George Washington. And like crazy. And I know why. It's not a Democrat or even Republican thing. It's that people are so tired of putting on the TV and seeing politicians on what they want to show their kids or leaders. Mm-hmm. We know there's a giant difference between a politician and a leader. Every single person knows that that's listening here. And we got to do better at, at being leaders. And I think the sad part is right now um, is that we just have to take that lesson on ourselves. We have to be our own leaders. And that that's a hard one. Let me ask you this. Um, you know, there's a... Um, I, I find it interesting that in American culture, the Marvel comics, uh, Captain America, Superman, uh, all of these things took off during World War II. Uh-huh. And and it it happened, I believe, because when you saw evil on such a grand scale, you didn't know what to do. The average person just didn't know what to do, didn't know how to process it, didn't know how to help um, and we needed a superhero. And I, di- I mean, you know, Hollywood will no, tell you're exactly right. Ho- I mean, Hollywood will tell us that now that this is just because they're looking for series. I think the Marvel resurgence at this time is more than just the movies saying, you know, we can make these better. It's 
It's really... Oh, you've never been more credible. Let's look at it historically. I can show you my, my senior paper in college was about superheroes as propaganda in World War II. And when I looked at it, if you look back uh, at the history of heroes, you know who the biggest heroes were during the Great Depression? They were Tarzan and they were Flash Gordon. They were characters designed to transport you elsewhere. They were escapist because the Depression was exactly that, depressing. So no one wanted to be here. They wanted to be in the 25th century. They wanted to be in the jungle. And as World War II started encroaching on our shores in 1938-39, this character takes off like nobody's ever seen before, named Superman. And why? Because we're a country that was scared, and we needed a hero to come save us. And here was this bulletproof man named Superman who suddenly out of nowhere, as World War II's hitting, suddenly starts selling a million copies. And if you look historically, right when 9-11 happened, if you look at, everyone said there'll be no irony again, there'll be no humor again, we were a country lost and scared again. Mm-hmm. If you look at the first movie that broke through the public consciousness at the time, it was Spider-Man. It was, we weren't a country of Superman anymore, we weren't invulnerable, but we were Spider-Man. We were, we were, we were you know, nervous and we were scared like Spider-Man is, but fighting like no one's ever fought before was still the best country for that. No one fights like we do. And... Here came Spider-Man, and for the past, as you've seen, 15 years is the resurgence of all these heroes. It's not because people want a series. It's because we are starving for heroes right now. We are searching for heroes right now. That is why even the bad superhero movies make $100 million, because we don't see our heroes on TV anymore. We don't see them in Congress. We don't see them in government. We don't see them in the White House. We don't see them anywhere on any side of the party for a while, for so long now. And the result is we're gonna, we're gonna, we need heroes. That's the country, we're a country founded by heroes, founded on our legends and myths. And we will find them where, when we need them. And it's why, to me, like, listen, when I went to the Dover people, the reason, you know me, I write a book every two years, right? That's what it does. This took me three years to write The Escape Artist because I was so blown away by the real heroes I saw at Dover, the real heroes I saw in the USO, the real heroes I saw in the military, that I was like, I need to do this justice. And I found this other hero. I, I mean, this is a great one. I didn't know that since World War I, the U.S. Army has had an actual painter on staff who has been there since World War I, and they race in to paint what happens, whether it's the beaches in Normandy, whether it's Vietnam, whether it's uh, 9-11. They were there on 9-11, too. And I was getting a tour of this museum. They had paintings of Hitler by Adolf Hitler. They had paintings of these top military people. I said, why do you have all this art? They said, these are done by our war artists. I said, you're telling me that while everyone else is racing into a disaster with guns, that you have someone on staff who's racing in with nothing but paintbrushes in their pockets? I said, that's the craziest job I've ever heard. That's a hero. I want to meet him. And they said to me, you mean her. You want to meet her. And that's where Nola, the hero and the escape artist, came from. And I was just blown away that there was this hidden hero in the military that has been documenting everything we've been doing since World War I, Glenn. And we knew nothing about her. We knew nothing about him. It's been a, a male for so many years, you know, recently a woman. And I just said, I have to build this character for the escape artist around it because I need to give people heroes again. Ones we can actually believe in, not politicians but the regular men and women who are serving us every single day, those are our heroes. Couldn't agree with you uh, more. It's hard to find um, real heroes because when you do find them, uh, you know, you you have to recognize that they're people too. So they're, they're flawed as well. And everybody seemingly just wants to tear everybody apart. 
Can I ask you, um, you know, the one thing that we're not talking about, uh, we're talking to Brad uh, Meltzer. He is the author of the book, The Escape Artist. It's a thriller. It came out today. His best work uh, to date, if you're a fan of Brad, get this one. Um, uh, I downloaded it midnight last night. Um, Brad, the the situation that we're having, and I don't want to get into politics, um, but the situation that we have with guns right now, we are blaming now uh, the guns. And, and I made a list of this, um, of the things that we've assigned blame to over the years. We've blamed politicians. We blamed Wall Street. We blamed uh, uh, the government, corporations, globalism, the media, Islam, Christians, the Jews, capitalism, socialism, education, the doctors, the hospitals, the insurance companies. And we're down to guns. Um, one thing that's not on the list is us. Oh, you couldn't agree more. So let's look historically at that. I've studied um, over the years. I went to the Secret Service to study presidential assassins. I wanted to know the people that actually kill people. Tell me about them. Don't tell me about all the stuff. Tell me about the people, us, right? Let's look, take a hard look at ourselves. And I live not far from where Parkland is. This is right in our backyard. I live in Florida. And you know what the Secret Service told me is there are two types of people that hunt presidents. There are hunters and there are howlers. And what a howler does is someone who makes noise and says, I'm going to go kill the president, I'm going to go do something, make a lot of noise, make a lot of threats. They never do anything. They howl. They make noise. They do nothing. They said, what you worry about are not the howlers, you worry about the hunters. And the hunters say nothing. And the hunters don't tip you off. And the hunters never tell you they're coming. And the hunters who you have to look out for. But what I looked at when I was examining them is the people and what they have in common who have gone after presidents successfully is they all tend to be young. They all are pretty quiet. They're all actually neat, oddly. They don't do drugs. They don't, it's not alcohol. Um, and obviously have some level of kind of mental illness that's out there. But I think you're exactly right, is we love to blame everything except that person in the mirror. And it's why I started this beautiful conversation. One of my favorites we've had, Glenn, over the years, is that with that single word that Houdini left for his mother, forgive. And the person we have to kind of forgive and start with is ourselves. There's nothing wrong with looking at yourself and saying, let's start here. The only way, you know, Gandhi teaches us, the only way you change the world is you start with yourself. He says, I'm not perfect. He loses his temper too. Is Gandhi lost his temper. Mm -hmm. And he says, the only way you change the world is you start with yourself. If we this, all just, you know, that we, we can't change the world by yelling at people on Facebook. This book is changing anybody. This book has changed you, hasn't it? It, you know, um, you know me a long time. Mm -hmm. You know me from the start of my career. This is my 20 year anniversary. And when I started this book, I can't help but get nostalgic because um, I'm someone who loves history. How could I not? And I looked back at my own career and I said to myself, what's my high point? Where are the books that I did my best work? And I looked back and I realized it was the books that had the best characters, characters I cared about that I rooted for them. Yeah. And I realized I started writing so much about politicians that I wasn't rooting for them. And I just said, you know what? It's going to take me an extra year. But I found these people through the USO at Dover. I found these heroes in the military who are, are artists in residence and are war artists. I found even Harry Houdini, and I built the escape artist because I was like, I need to do that. Because I think that all of us, and you have this too, we all have a legacy in our lives. And your legacy is, you know, you have your family and you have your friends, but the leg, you know, it's not your job title that's your legacy. No one, when you die, it's the last time your resume is ever going to be mentioned. Your job title fades with you. 
But you, the things you do for other people, that's what lasts, and that's what endures. And it's your family, and it's your friends that you help. You have a very special one, Glenn. You have the two other categories, which is your community. And, right, there are people out there in your community that are just changed by the conversations you have, the hope you give them. But the last one's the most important, I think, for all of us. And it's the impact we all have on complete and utter strangers. And for some of us, it happens, you know, you, you give money to a breast cancer walk or you're doing, a, you know, you go to your church or your synagogue, you bring canned goods for the food drive. But there are people out there, you're never going to meet them, Glenn. They're never going to meet you. But things you've donated to, causes you've donated to, I know for so many years, you'll never meet each other, but you're forever part of each other's legacy. And as I looked at Dover and as I looked at these heroes, I, I saw it. I was like, you know, here we are. We all support the military. We all love it. But these people that are doing the real work are strangers to us. They change our lives. And I just, this book changed me and really made me take a hard look and realize that the legacy isn't just, you know, family and friends and what's, you know, right in front of us, but the world is far bigger. And I hope uh, that 20 years in, I'm still trying to learn something, still trying to learn. I have the opportunity to talk to an awful lot of people. um, And uh, Brad, you are my favorite guest to have on the air. I just love having you on the air. You're a good, decent man. Uh, you're, you're everywhere doing everything all the time. You put me to shame on, on hardworking. Uh, and you are unbelievably gifted at writing. Brad Meltzer, the name of the book is The Escape Artist. It's a thriller. It is available everywhere now. Thanks, Brad. Glenn Beck. The Blaze Radio Network.